I was, without sort of going into too much detail, there wasn't a Af- non-African athlete. And before I say this, I'll, I'll stipulate by saying, I wasn't out there to beat African runners. I was out there to try to beat the, the best runners in the world. And they just happened, the majority of them happened to come from that part of the, from Africa, from that part of the world. Um, but there hadn't been someone from outside of Africa that was able to compete with, um, with those Africans in nearly 20 years or whatever it was. So it was important and it was a, a big breakthrough for, well, obviously for me, but for, for our sport, for distance running as a whole to show that it didn't matter where you came from. If you had the desperation, desire to want to compete, you could. And we didn't do anything spectacular on that day. We didn't run very fast. We didn't close that quickly. Nothing that we hadn't done before. It was just that I honestly felt that I could get a medal. Mm. I had the confidence and belief that I could get it. And, and I think our Western athletes now, our athletes from Australia and now the various parts of the world, Stewie, is starting to come into that level of confidence now, which is great. But I think we, a lot of our athletes don't have that, that belief and no. that's something we need to change. I think you gave a lot of people hope. Yep. You have a lot of, like a lot of uh, young runners and even just well, club runners hope they could, they could be better than what, the preconceived idea was but then I, I agree that um unfortunately you need to have like an amazing amount of grit and toughness and just just desire and the people belief. Un- misunderstand what that is like i i had a lot of people that loved loved what i did and then i had on the other side a lot of people that thought i was overconfident or whatever but if i didn't have that i, I was up against it there was one of me and you know uh, you know the uh, country full or a continent full of the best runners in i had to somehow break through that that sort of barrier. 100% agree. And if I was just going to be a timid little mm. athlete, and that's not my personality anyway, I had to just be who I was. And if I wasn't, I would have never, got, oh. I would have never walked through that door. And I think it's really important for people to understand to just be what you are, irrespective of wh- how people view you. I think it's important to be. If you are competitive, let it out. How many takeaways can one man give in an interview? Like listeners, just go over and over on that, these things. And the thing about podcasts is, and stuff like this, audio books, but podcasts, is you just need to listen to this four or five times because he's already dropped so many nuggets for life, not just distance running, but life in general. And um, really, really appreciate where this is going, big fella. That was massive. Was the night? Did you have a big night? The frothies were. <laughs> well, nothing was open, so I, we had the world the medal presentation and. And I didn't actually have a full Australian tracksuit. And the only people that were left in the Australian team were the doctor, Karen Holzer, um, who I had some spike marks, which she cleaned up before the presentation, and the team manager. Um, so I had to borrow the team manager's tracksuit pants to stay up to stand up on the dais, and they were about halfway down my leg. Um, so I got my medal, did the presentation, all that sort of stuff. And then when I came back, the people that were actually doing the presentations had gone. So I didn't even get a box for my medal. I just walked out of the stadium, no driver, nothing. There was, the stadium was empty. We got a tram back to the hotel. The bro- a, hang on a minute. The bronze tram. medalist of the World Championships. We got a tram back to the hotel and we went, tried to go out for dinner. Nothing was open. So Because this is about 1 a.m. Because you're drug tested and everything else after these sort of things. So it's about 1 a.m. And then Michael Johnson, um, the 400-meter guy, and, and Sebastian Coe and these sort of guys were all having dinner at some pasta joint, which was still open. So we went there with Maury and, and my coach and whatever else, my team of people, and we went there. And as I walked in, I got a standing ovation from Michael Johnson and all these other guys. That's, that's very good. And my mum and dad came as well. And we just sat there and had a quiet meal. It was it was actually a very boring night, to be quite honest. We were rooted. Yeah, no, knackered, well, yeah, you know? you're, you're probably, the beers you're might tired. be going down a bit yeah. slow anyway when you're, that, you're yeah. that rooted. But no, that's that's phenomenal. And those stories are, are just once in a lifetime stuff. So, yeah. so you and your parents walk into a bar and Michael Johnson yep. uh, gives you a standing ovation. It was it was pretty cool. You're at the peak of your powers. The nation definitely knows about you now. The world knows about you 
by all means. And the Africans are really respecting you in, in big times. And they, yeah. they, they're talking about you in glowing terms. And, and their mutual admiration for you is, um, is very unique because they don't always uh, respect the Westerners and the Europeans. So their love and the respect for you is, is definitely very real at this point in your life. Coming into, um, I guess, what, seven, eight months later in your hometown, a pretty big mm-hmm. meet. Um, and look, the Commonwealth Games, um, in athletics terms, uh, are bloody hard to win because you've got the Kenyans, you've got other African nations there. So tell me about your lead up to that. I think um, Craig Maltram was in fever pitch. The Herald Sun probably had you in every day leading mm-hmm. up to the Com Games for about 50 days in a row. Yeah, there was a lot going on around there um, with that. Um, and that's... That was the idea, obviously, to when you when you compete well at the good World for the Championships. Sport. Absolutely, and having the Commonwealth Games at the MCG was phenomenal. Um, and we tried to keep it pretty normal because it, it fell at around the same time as our Australian Championships would normally fall um, from an athletic season's perspective. So we just tried to build it and prepare like we would a national championship. I was pre-qualified, so I didn't need to worry about any of that sort of stuff. Um, and we did the Falls Creek trip. We go up to altitude. I used to love going to Falls Creek, not for the altitude, just to get out of Melbourne and go and train. It's my favourite place in the world to go and run. Um, it's very popular now. Um, so I did my Falls Creek trip, came back to Melbourne in preparation for the Com Games um, and found it a little bit too overwhelming, to be honest, in terms of just... I, I was living in Richmond. I'd walk across Punt Road. to I was actually training at Richmond Footy Club in the gym facility. They let me have access there because there was no one else there. So I, w- I wouldn't get bothered when I was doing my gym stuff and that and those sort of things. Um, so I'd walk across Punt Road at Richmond Footy Club and as the, the lights would go green to walk across, it, the cars coming from both ways, people would, you know, great, be supporting and cheering and all that sort of stuff, which was really good. But I just wanted to go run <laughs> like I, and round the tan and all that sort of stuff, which is fantastic, but it's not really real. So I actually went to Ballarat, um, spoke to Steve Monaghetti in Ballarat and said, I want to come up to Ballarat just get out of Melbourne for two or three weeks and train. And um, he sort of said, no worries. Um, hooked me up with some accommodation and off I went um, and used Lake Windaree and all the surrounding areas that Mona had trained with over his career um, to set myself up and, uh, and train. And actually one of the guys I took to, to Ballarat with me to train was Mo Farah. <laughs> so Mo Farah actually lived with me in Richmond before the Commonwealth Games came to train with me in Ballarat for, for three weeks or four weeks nearly before the Commonwealth Games, uh, before he became the Mo Farah that, and I'm not saying I had anything to do with his success, but it's just interesting the journey that different athletes take. Everyone's got to start somewhere. And for Mo, that was at the very beginning of his career. And I think he was 14th or something at the Commonwealth Games, 12th, whatever it is. Um, so the final parts of the preparations happened in Ballarat. Then I came back down to Richmond. Again, I opted not to stay in the village prior to the race, um, just because it, it didn't suit me, I didn't like it. So I stayed in my house on, in Stanley Street in Richmond, which overlooked the MCG. Um, and on the, the night of the 5K final, which was the Monday night, I think it was, the second night of ass, um, I walked from my house in Richmond down Stanley Street onto Swan Street towards Olympic Park, across Punt Road. As I went past Holly Avers and all that, there was all these nightclubs there, people going off their heads. It was about 7.30 at night. I was on at 9.45 or whatever it was. Walked to Olympic Park. Um, did my warm-up and then you get bust so there's what they call call rooms in these sort of championships where prior to going out on the track there are two or three different call rooms you've got to go through where they check your equipment you know, make sure everybody's there that sort of stuff um, the first call room was at Olympic Park which is where Collingwood's training facility is now um, and then they put all the athletes so all the f- other 14 guys you're going to run against they put you on a bus together so you've got to sit next to the people you've got to run against and then they drive you around 
to underneath the MCG, so up onto Batman Avenue and then under the MCG into the Richmond change rooms, which were underneath, which was the final call room. Then you put your spikes on, you do a few different drills or whatever else, get yourself ready, and then you, you walk up onto the, the track. But I remember in this call room, um, I, I used to go to the toilet quite a lot before I'd run. I'd get nervous like everybody else, and I'd do a number two quite frequently in the call room just to, to go. And I remember going to the toilet in the call room. I didn't need to go, but I thought, geez, I better go. I haven't gone, I better go. So I went in there, sat down. This is way too much detail. I sat down and I couldn't go, I didn't need to go to the toilet. And I'm thinking, what the fuck, what's going on? I'm, all, I'm about to go out there and run in probably the biggest race of my life and I don't need to go to the toilet. And then I remember just having laughing to myself and thinking, I must be really relaxed, <laughs> like a training session. That's magnificent. And much like the brushing the teeth and, mm. you know, and, all, and the looking at the the Olympic flame and all that, and the question that I was asked before the final mm. in Helsinki, there's always a moment of realisation in those things where you you just got to bring yourself back to reality and put it all in perspective. And for me, I was like, well, if I don't need to shit, I don't need to shit, just get up and go. So we got out onto the track um, and and off we went. And we had, I knew the competition was going to be pretty good. We had Ben Limo, um, Augustine Chogi and Joseph Abuya. And Joseph Abuya was world junior cross-country championship medalist, so we knew he'd be very good from Kenya. That means they're about as good as the seniors. Ben Limo's defending world champion. He's the one that beat me in Helsinki. And the one we didn't know about was Augustine Chogi. And Ben Limo, the world champion, didn't want to come to Melbourne um, because he just didn't want to come and run in the Commonwealth Games. So we actually twisted his arm and Mori did a lot of good work in getting him to come to Australia to run against me because we wanted to give the event credibility. Um, and he said, I'll only come if you let me bring my training partner. And we were like, yeah, whatever, bring whoever you want. <laughs> and um, so we brought this guy, Augustine Chogi, out. Um, we didn't know who he was. We didn't really know much about him. And we knew based on what we'd learned from Helsinki, much like Athens leading into Helsinki, we knew from Helsinki to Melbourne that um, the race needed to be faster. If I was going to beat Ben Lima, it needed to be faster. Um, so I was prepared to make it quick, but in this case, for whatever reason, um, the Kenyan guys, Ben Limo, and that, they went to the front and they started to pour it on. So they poured the pace on at, I think it was 7.53, um, 7.52, whatever it is, through 3K, which is about 12, uh, 13.02, 13.03 pace. Um, and so it was quick enough. So I didn't need to do anything. I knew at that pace I would get, I'd wind them up at the end and it would be not an issue, not, a, not an issue, but I would be very hard to beat. So I, the plan was that if it was slow, four laps to go, go to the front and wind it up. If it was fast, wait for three laps and then go to the front. So at about 1,200, just just after, just inside three laps ago, I think it was 1,100, I went to the front. Because um, it was quick and started to wind it up, wind it up, wind it up, got rid of Ben, didn't take long, and then I had this guy, I'm thinking, who the fuck's this guy? And he kept clipping my heels, and when someone's clipping the heels, that means they're running over the ground. So they're, they're on top of you, they're all over it. And that's, if you're following, that's a good sign, because it means you, you know, you're, you're moving forward. And um, I knew with about 600 to go, he clipped my heel and I was like, shit, if I can't get rid of him by the time we get round here again, I'm in real trouble because I was on the limit. And um, sure enough, at the bell, clipped again and then you start to go far out. This is going to, you know, I hope he hasn't got much more to give. And then on the back straight, he shot past me and I tried to respond and I had, really didn't have much to give at that point. Um, and then he ran away with it and he was phenomenal. Like Augustine, that run, I don't know if it's his best run ever, but... What he did that day, I ran 3.57 for the last mile of a 12K. He ran 3.56 um, and on his ear. On his ear, but... There was nothing I could have done. No, no, nothing. Well, nothing I did on that day. I could, I could not have beaten that guy on that day. And we both ran out of our skin. Every race you've ever had, I don't think you could have done any more. But two things about that race. 
the noise, yeah, yeah. the noise, which I can't, I don't imagine being that. Like it was louder than any AFL grand final, any yep. like the drawn grand final, any of those noises, right? It's just, it's outrageous. That noise, the last thousand or fifteen hundred or so, mm. was unbelievable. Again, the big, the big blonde mullet up, I just loved it. It was unbelievable, <laughs> and the time, the yeah. time for a championships race, I think, um, doesn't get talked enough about enough because people win medals and golds are, are forty seconds slower than that. And the time yeah. was phenomenal. But we talked times, but as to my original point, it was never about trying to run fast. It was about trying to win the damn that's thing. That's how fast it was. And that's what, that's what yeah. was required. And it still wasn't good enough. And I remember saying that exact thing after the race um, when I was walking back to my house in Richmond. What have we got to do to, to win these frigging things? Like, I, you know, closed in 52, didn't get there. 357 for the last mile, didn't get there. What, and this goes back to that ammunition that's required to actually win these races. It's, they're very, very difficult to win. Um, and so, you know, that, I was a little bit disheartened after that. But one of the coolest things um, happened after that, like you get drug tested obviously after those sort of things. So I was drug tested and while you're waiting to be drug tested, you're allowed to jog around and they give, um, you get a chaperone that follows you so they can watch everything you're doing. Um, and I needed to warm down because I had the 1500 on later in the week. And um, the, um, what do you call it? The groundsman, the caretaker of the MCG said, oh Craig, if you want to warm down, you can use the infield of the MCG of the track um, and just give me a knob when you're done and I'll turn the lights off. So I've, you can picture it, I've run, there's 100,000 people at the MCG, it was going off its head. It was an epic race, um, you know, and I'm still trying to wind down and process the whole thing. And then 15, 20 minutes after the race, I get to go out onto the MCG and jog around by myself, just in my own space and just not a soul. It's just the people cleaning the rubbish up from the stands. It was dead silent, lit up like a Christmas tree. Did my 15 minute jog, walked off the track and this gave the guy a nod and he just went, and turn the lights off of the MCG. And for me, when people talk about highlights of the career, that that is probably one of the coolest things that I ever experienced. Just to have that on my own for 10, 15 minutes was really cool. Yeah, there's those little things in, like, but you think about highlights and that's, yeah, stuff you never, ever forget. You think you got, you've done that amazing race, you've, you you were definitely bankrupt at the end, but then you, you got, okay, a bit of silver lining. Um, I'm in good shape, mile shape, 348 shape. For the mile, I got a fifteen hundred, possibly not as stellar a field as as the yep. five thousand was. Uh, three or four days later, the nation especially goes well. Busted just wins this. Is probably a dollar thirty on. I can't remember. I know Nick Willis was won it, but who else was in the field that was any good that could have beat you? Because oh, there was a couple. Of all things being equal, Badley maybe, but all things. Well, Andy Badley was training with me as well, um, but yeah, we were pretty com- confident we we would have had his measure. Um, Nick Willis was the one. Mark Fountain was an Australian guy. Actually, got third. Um, but to be honest, I remember in the warm-up area, Ben Limo, who was the world champion, finished third in the 5K, came up to me and he goes, I think you'll go one better tonight, Craig. And I said, thanks, Ben. I said, and I said to him, hey, what are your guys like? And he said, oh, you'll smash them, basically. So really it was Nick Willis, that was the only one. And then um, obviously the, the heat was run on the, whatever it was, the Saturday or the Friday night, and the final was the next day. I was very nervous for the 1500 because it wasn't my event. Um, so I was I was pretty wound up tight about it, um, but the heat helped relax me a little bit. I knew I was in really good nick, and my plan for the fifteen hundred was really simple: was set all the first eight hundred and at eight hundred to go, run like you stole something, and just get on the gas and drop a fifty three fifty four for the third lap, and I'd be away. And then in my mind, I'd rehearse that, you know, I'd be fifteen twenty meters clear, and I'd be able to cruise down the straight and just, you know, try to so enjoy the experience, um, and. 
that's not to underestimate Nick Willis or anything else. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's an Olympic medalist. He's done far more than I ever did in my career in his respective events, and he's a, a true gentleman and a legend of our sport. But at that time, you know, we were both at different points in our career. Um, and everybody knows the story. 7.50 in, um, Andy Baddeley fell behind me, and as he fell, he clipped my heel, and I went down, and that, that's the end of it. I'd, I'd love to give you more detail around what happened, but it was just a comedy of errors, and and um, it was one of those things and there was there was a mim a 10 seconds when i got up and i started running that i thought i might be able to catch up but we're not we're not mucking around at school sports here you're moving no. with guys that can really run and once they get inside that 600 meters to go they're running at 28 second 200 pace to make up 30 40 meters you gotta be running at 25 it's just not going to happen so then it was just get around <laughs> we had a big night after that one good boy we had a very big night we ended up at the last lap and had a lot of fun um with that and i remember when i got home actually after that i was sitting upstairs in my shower on the floor just processing life and my best mate skooks and prenda another one of my good mates walked in with a slab on their shoulder and they actually walked got into the shower um i had nothing on they had they put they kept their undies on just to keep it clean they walked in the shower, put the slab in the corner, opened it up, gave me a beer and said, you know what, let's just crack on. That's the only way to go. <laughs> and we, and we had on. a laugh about it. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> what, are we, you know, what are the chances of that? And we did, we had a laugh. And it was probably only, it was a couple of days later that I was out for a run by myself that I really started to take stock of what was, um, of what, what had happened and what I'd missed out on. So it was, yeah, I remember I was in Faulkner Park and I was running. I actually stopped and had a walk for a couple of minutes. Took a few big breaths because I was like, "That's a big, that's a big miss. That's a big opportunity that's gone. That'll never come back." But you know, what what can you do? Well, it's life, and it? It, 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 you do move on. But your um your philosophy on it was always great. Lot from an outward looking in, lot just the best attitude to it all, and just continue, just put in perspective and move on. And um, like those things happen. They like, do. Like, they absolutely do. And I. It's, you know, I had my granny's 80th birthday on that, that Sunday. So I had a big night and then had to rock up to my granny's 80th birthday. And I turned up to her house and I'd said prior to the 1500 final, win, lose or draw, tomorrow is my day. I've got to go to my granny's 80th birthday. You know, she's expecting me there. I want to be there. So I drove down to Geelong and, and had my birth, had the birthday. Turned up, opened the door and she goes, oh, how did you go, dear? And I said, oh, it's been a big week. Fell over last night in the 1500. And she goes, oh, you happy with that? I go, no, not really, Granny. <laughs> she goes, oh, that's okay. Come in and had a cup of tea and had the birthday party and, you know, all those things. At the end of the day, would we be talking about this if, if I'd won it? Probably not as much. No, <laughs> you know, well, like, it probably doesn't get brought up as much. No. no, but look, at the end of the day, that's what racing is about. And, you know, right. and that's, it doesn't go as you want it to go all the time. And I think the, the my, back to my mentor, um, Steve, he used to say, and this was a thing that resonated with me, in the World Cup, which was you'll probably talk about in a minute. Um, he said, and it's a quote, the true measure of a man is not where he stands in times of comfort, but where he stands in times of challenge and controversy. And I know that sounds corny, but for, for whatever reason, I thought, you know what? That's really true. I was at my best and I could have easily won that race, but it didn't happen that way. I fell over. Now what am I going to do about it? And I learned a lesson. If I don't want to get stuck in those situations again where there's too much technical, tactical crap going on, if I want to win the race... Let's just get out there and, and win it. Rightio, mate. And I think around that time, uh, Bust, I reckon most of the country knew how good you were by then. Um, like I said, you'd been all over the media. You'd, you'd battled it out with the best in the world at the 
probably the greatest point in the sport's history for elites um, for the last three seasons now. So going into 07, um, I can't imagine how confident you are strutting around at training just and the body just feels like a well-oiled machine. Everything's mm. running well. Tell us about, I guess, the transition. We'll first get to the 06 uh, European summer and then taking mm. us to 07 Australian summer. So off the back of those the Com Games, which we've obviously spoken about in detail, there was... <laughs> There was a bit of a down period, actually. I think you need to have a down period. You need to have a break after something like that, in particular, off of World Championships in late 05 and then Com Games in 06. Um, and the expectation and pressure and, I suppose, the emotional drain that comes with it, you need a bit of downtime. So we, we did have head over to Europe, as we normally would, but it was more just to get out of Australia, relax, um, and then start to build up again to that latter part of 06, which had the World Cup in Athens. And I was obviously the defending champion from 2002. Um, World Cup um, and I remember before we touch on 07 just talking about 06 World Cup um, I was in good good nick as as you've sort of mentioned and you go through this sort of purple patch in your career and I had mine from sort of 04 to 08 I would, I would think um, and I remember lining up at the press conference before the World Cup and one of the journalist guys said oh do you know Ken Anissa Bakili's running in the 3k tomorrow um, which we didn't know we, we knew he was going to run something we didn't know what event it was going to be um, and my response to him was, I don't really care who's running. doesn't make any difference to me. I'm in good nick. Um, I'll be hard to beat. Um, and if Kennedy's is running, that'll make it an honest race. And um, sure enough, he did. He lined up. He raced. And I think he wanted to break. He wanted to get rid of the field early. So in those sort of races in the World Cup at the end of a major season where you know, the championship had been on earlier in the year, people want an easy race. Um, there's a lot of money on the line at World Cup. Um, and people don't want to have to work harder than they need to um, to get a result. And Ken Anissa tried to play on that. Um, but I was motivated from falling over in the 1500 at the Com Games, motivated as defending champion. Um, and man on man, and I used to say this and people thought I was overconfident or whatever, but I used to think man on man, so it was me versus one other bloke, there wasn't a person in the world that could beat me. Um, and I just used to get myself into trouble in races by getting into the wrong position or if there was three or four or five or six people I was running against, it was a lot harder. But one-on-one, -on -one, when I was at my best, I don't think there would have been many people in the world that could beat me. And uh, Ken Anissa went out four minutes through four laps and I followed him. Um, and then he slowed down. We dropped a 65 second lap there. He turned around and he actually pointed at me and said, you, you take the lead. And I remember running up next to him on the back straight. And if you watch the video, you, you can't see me talking, but you can. I turned to him. And I said, like, fuck, I will. And he just looked at me like, what, what am I doing with this guy? And we'd raced before, so we knew each other. And then I just sort of slotted back in and then about 900 ago went to the front and just picked it up, picked it up, picked it up. And, and I dropped him with about 200 to go, 250 to go, around 7.32 and, um, and won the World Cup. And I, I think I even surprised myself a little bit in doing that. And he wasn't prepared for it. He didn't want to have to work that hard. He thought he'd go fast at the start. It's my reading on it anyway. He thought he could go fast at the start, get rid of everybody. And um, and on that day, um, it fell my way. Kinanese is one of the greatest runners to have ever lived. Um, and I'm certainly not saying that I'm, I'm a better athlete than he is, but on that day, um, the, the cards fell my way and that was really, really cool. Well, that's there. Yeah, I can't believe I was remiss of me nearly to miss that. Um, Kenisa Bikili, Bikili what, what do you reckon? 12.37 for five. Like, yeah. And 04, you were in that race, obviously. <laughs> um, he's, he's like Michael Jordan. Uh, oh, he's and, a gun. And, and, but you, yep. you never, you never ever, ever treated him like Michael Jordan, which is the reason why you were, no, well, you were so good. 
Well, that's probably one of the reasons, and I and I think I, I just I didn't grow up idolising these these people. When I started running in '98, we've sort of gone through the history of my introduction to running, but I went from a schoolboy athlete in '98 to the Olympics in 2000. Within the space of 18 months, I was already competing at an international level. So I never spent you know eight to ten years like a lot of our young athletes now, looking and thinking and understanding and realising and running the numbers and data on what people can and can't do. When I was running as a kid, it was the gun went, try to win a race. It was as simple as that. Um, sometimes you did, sometimes you didn't, depending on how it went. Um, and I tried to take that approach throughout my career, irrespective of who I was running against. And I would flip it the other way in that um, people would feel pressure running against African runners and the best runners in the world, where I would turn it the other way and think, well, no one expects me to actually go that well here. I'm six foot three, 70 plus kilo, I'm white, I'm from, you know, born in Frankston, like no one, who is this person? So I would always take the pressure off myself and say, give it everything and accept the result, whatever it is. And maybe you'll surprise some, maybe you won't. But at the end of the day, the only person that's gonna be disappointed here is me. If I can live with that, so be it. And I would take that approach irrespective of who I was running against. Say good boss, say that, that then you are at your very peak. Yeah, like, yeah. absolute peak of your powers. and. Um, Uncharted territory, like Everest-type stuff for for Western runners. So moving forward to, I guess, the end of the European summer, start of 07 summer, we're looking pretty much uh, 07 Australian summer now, Beijing-bound. Yep. Um, do you, you keep everything pretty much the same going yeah. forward? We spoke at length about your methodology, which was awesome um, earlier on. What happens now in the summer of 07? You're still coming back to Melbourne, a bit of a rock star-type setup. Can you keep everything as normal? It falls and all these. Yeah, kind of things? you can. Of course, you can. I mean, Australia is a fantastic place to live. We, our, our um, training is fantastic. Our people here are awesome. My group was well set up. Um, the Australian summer just played out as it as it normally does. Um, spent a lot of time up at Falls Creek. Generally, three weeks on, two to three weeks off. So I'd spend three, probably a total of three, nearly four months up over at Falls Creek every summer, um, and get ready for nationals. And the beauty of having you know, a good year is that you pre-qualify for major championships moving, you know, for the for the following year. So there's always a qualification period where you need to run a time and then obviously meet particular, tick particular boxes. So medal at the national championships, those sort of things. Um, so for me, the times were already met. So it was about just doing, going through the formalities, which was running the national championships and that sort of stuff. So the summer of 07, what is it, 06, 07, um, was pretty much that come down, run the nationals, do what I needed to do, keep it pretty basic, um, and then pre prepare for something which is 18 months away, which is really difficult to do. And, and that's one of the biggest traps with the Olympics is it's only every four years. People put a lot of weight and expectation on it. It's very hard to prepare for something so far away. So you've got to try to bring it back and have your goals set more realistically from a time perspective. So that's your nationals and then getting over to Europe, picking a couple of key target races. At the back end of those seven, we had the world championships in, um, going to say they were in Osaka, far out, that's a long time ago, but in Osaka, um, and I was in really good nick leading into that. I ran a 5K in Ostrava. Um, I ran a two-mile, rather, at Prefontaine. Oh, hang on. We're, we're, <laughs> Are we there? We've <laughs> I think missed we're, it. I it's think one of my there. favourite Buster moments <laughs> of all time. All right, hang on. I do love, though, that 5,000 was a good race. I think Leggett yeah, yeah. won that one, but let's go back. No, no, I won it. No, no, no. The, the, um, oh, no. the world champs. You jumped to the world champs. Oh, the world champs, yeah. sorry. Did the gap win that? But we're, we're going to go. Can we go he back? did, actually. Yeah, he yeah, did. I remember right. that well because he, yeah. he was another 1500 man. Yeah, yeah. Up. There you but go. I'm, 1500s. Yeah, the world. Well, best 1500 meter runners generally yeah. win. The world champs, we'll get to that in a minute. But 
we've got to go back. So this this is uh, the pre-classic, and if you ever met a runner or an athlete that mirrored a man like, I know you're a lot bigger than Prefontaine, but you are you are Steve Prefontaine reincarnated, just a lot taller. Without the handstand. Yeah. Have you seen like, the movie? Yeah, many times. <laughs> Um, many, many Those that have seen the movie will know what that means without the hands. Many, 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 many times. But you are Australia's pre. And um, but anyway, you've, you're racing the Prefontaine Classic, and the Yanks just love this bloke. Listeners, I'll let him take it away now. So Prefontaine's obviously a meet named after Steve Prefontaine. It's run out of um, Oregon um, in the US. Um, there's a track there at the university, which um, obviously Pre used to train at quite a bit. Oregon University over there. Um, and there's a big meet, which is now one of the probably the top five meets in the world. Um, and it's a Nike run meet. I was a Nike contracted athlete at the time. And um, I ran the two mile there in 2007. Um, and it was, it's probably one of my best runs. Um, I was racing against Tariku Bakili, so Kenanisa's little brother, um, who was quite a good athlete as well at the time. And um, to cut a long story short, I ran 803.5. Um, for two miles, so we, I think we were through the first mile in about 4.03, 4.04, and then negative split under four minutes for the second mile. And again, it was just one of those sort of races that happened. It was man on man. And when it's like that, as I said before, it's very, it was very hard to get rid of. Um, and then it, it just came down to the competitive nature in that final sort of 600 metres. And, um, and I ran really well. I had a great run, um, 8.03. I don't know where that sits now, but that's probably still one of my faster and better runs um, from a world ranking perspective, uh, but more importantly, just the way the, the race happened and the show and all of that sort of stuff. And I was big about, you know, if I ran well and I was happy with it, I'd tell people. And you, I know you're going to get to this interview that happened afterwards, but um, I can go straight into it if you like. But one, when I finished, I went straight onto the infielders, interviewed live on, I can't it's NBC or ESPN or one of those sort of sport networks, news networks that are over there. Um, and they asked me a couple of questions, and one of the questions was. Um, what does it take to run against African athletes? You seem to be the only person that's not afraid to sort of get in and run with them. And as he was asking the question, I was kind of you know, trying to pre-think of my answer or not. And the answer was, you've got to be brave. And it just came out like I would be talking to you now is, well, you've got to have big balls, that helps. you know. And from an Australian, that just means have a go. Um, but for an American, that was kind of not offensive, but they kind of stepped back a little bit from it. And this went live throughout the US. Um, and then they threw back to the studio because they didn't really have a response and the people in the studio were laughing, going, well, he's, he's an Aussie, what do you say? Um, and I didn't think anything of it and off I went, started my warm down and then all the Blackberries, all the agents had Blackberries back then and their phones were going off and as I was warming down, they were all just pissing themselves, laughing, coming up, going, mate, you've got big balls and all. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, and sure enough, that had all made the press and it was everywhere, uh, Buster has big balls or something like that. And truth be known, I've probably got the smallest set of nuts you've ever seen. But hey, I've got three kids, so they work okay. <laughs> hey, it's how you use it, brother. <laughs> it's definitely how you use it and how they work. Hey, um, I'll tell you what, just to, you've undersold that a lot. 803, still the fifth, fifth fastest ever two mile in the history of athletics, number one. Number two, that field was stacked as well. And I think like, well in your tracks was blokes like, I think Tekken Camp and that were, they, they ran American two mile records and, and Alan Webb and all those guys ran brilliantly, but they looked like they were mm. like half, a, half a lap behind, um, full lap behind you almost. So you made other extremely quality athletes look silly. We were swag about Bikili's younger brother and just the whole fact that the crowd was pumped, everything was going off again. It was, it was good. And I think one of the coolest things that's happened to me throughout my career at any point um, happened back at the hotel, the Meat Hotel after that. I was just coming back um, on the bus, got back into the foyer and a guy came up to me. Um, and introduced himself. I can't remember what his name was, but he he was 
um, a cousin or relative of Steve Prefontaine, and obviously they get invited to those meets. And Steve Prefontaine's um, family always come along, you know, in their, their, their older statesmen and whatever cousins and relatives come along. Um, and he said to me, he, he said um, Steve would be sitting up in his grave loving every minute of that. And I thought that was cool to have that, that meet, yeah, to have that meet go and to have the event like that, which was his sort of bread and butter, that two-mile, three-mile event. Um, Pre was one of the biggest names in US middle distance running history, still is, and was coached by one of the founders of founding members of the sort of Nike generation way back when that all got underway so it's pretty cool to actually still have those members involved in athletics and enjoying what you're doing that's for sure that's pretty special I, Ned, that's not something everyone knows no, so no. Ned, thanks for that mate look Bowman Dellinger Pre, these are names that we're all mm. just look you don't idolism it's just so much respect well, you've got a big mural of yeah, Steve like Prefontaine like, downstairs love it yeah. because people that understand running know who that is mm. uh, but he what Prefontaine's biggest achievement was he was able to transcend running which is not for everybody into a sport that was loved by everybody because he had the personality that attracted um, all sports loving people to the sport of athletics and we need more of that now I, in our sport i 100 percent agree and this is why um like buster and pre and these kind of guys are so important because if you got a like the club runners and footballers like myself and idolizing a bloke like craig and steve it means that they're their personalities are transcending, number one. They're greater than just running 12 and a half laps on the track, number two. And they just show that you just, once you, if you have a crack and you put yourself on the line, yeah. it comes down to the size of your balls. Anything can happen in life. And it, it's, it's a great metaphor for everything you do. And I think that's why these two men are still, we're still talking to Buster like all these years later, he's still doing some great things. But that era of his life was, was really, really special. All right, mate, you're at the peak. You're at the peak. So training stays the same. We're still yep. roughly the 130, 160K a week, roughly. Yeah, yeah. We don't talk too much about distance. But that kind of stuff, unbroken, really. So your strength training, all that stuff's going really well. Yep. So Look, take, take us through, the, I guess, the, the end of the World Champs with, with Legat's win. Yeah. And how so that, you felt in that meet. So the 07 start, like, obviously, the, the Prefontaine meet was great. I ran in Ostrava and won a 5K there in 1304. Um, we actually lined up to try to run under 12.50 in that race, had a pacemaker, but after the first 200 metres, the pacemaker stepped on the rail and rolled his ankle, so I had to step off. So obviously, without a pacemaker, it's very hard to run fast. Um, so it became a bit more of a tactical race, a sit and kick and a big wind up at the end. And I won that against Teruku, which was one of my better runs, actually, if we went back and reviewed how it all played out. So I knew I was ready. Um, for the World Championships in 07 and then we don't really we didn't really allow media to come to training sessions when I was based in London but for whatever reason two weeks out from the World Championships we did on this particular session at St Mary's College and um, I was doing a couple of easy reps to start the session and actually did my hammy in the in the session and the media sort of saw it but didn't really see it and I quickly went off to the side and then I ended up on a plane that afternoon to Ireland from the UK to see a guy called Jared Hartman who's a physio that we used a lot over in the UK and stayed there for eight days and wasn't able to run. Um, and then from there flew straight into Osaka World Championships without having done much running for a couple of weeks. And we didn't tell anybody, which was probably a mistake in hindsight, all that sort of stuff. There's all this sort of political um, negotiating and you know darting around trying to avoid particular things that happens when you're at that level. Um, so I went into the World Championships a little bit, um, un not under a cloud, but uncertain in my own mind as to how it would go. Um, but lined up anyway, made it through to the final. It nearly, it was hard work. The, the semi-final was hard work and knew in the final that it would be a tough, 
um, run. But I ran okay. I think I was 13, 12 or 13. Not great, but it is what it is. Um, and yeah, Legat won that um, from memory, I think, or you've, you've no, informed me, did he? So he, he can obviously burn as one of the best runners to ever lived as well. And we're not, we're, we're dealing with some serious athletes when we're you know, but, talking about these races. We're not certainly um, mucking around at that level. Um, so off the back of that, I was pretty flat. I remember um, after that, I was pretty flat. Um, that, that, that result didn't go as well as I would have liked. I would have loved to have had a positive lead in at a major champs into Beijing. But all in all, um, it's just one of those things, people get injured. Um, so it was about recovering from that, getting the emotional um, status back, the confidence back over our Australian summer. And 07, 08 summer was as normal, Falls Creek, all that sort of stuff. And the build up to Beijing was, um, was as, as we thought it would be, a, a grind, um, but everything was going as we thought it would. Um, and I don't know how, in how much detail you want to go into Beijing, but it was a battle. It was probably mm. one of the lesser moments of my career in terms of um, performance, but it's important to understand and appreciate that, that, you know, and acknowledge those things because sport's not always about how no. good things go. It can be how bad they are as well. Well, that's right. Um, and I, I remember um, prior to Beijing, I was carrying, um, I had Achilles problems for the, from probably 07 through till, um, well, basically the end of my career, I carried Achilles trouble. Um, and it didn't end my career, but it made the second half of it more challenging than I would have liked it to be. Um, and then the lead into Beijing wasn't wasn't interrupted by the Achilles. I was able to train and all that sort of stuff. But it just starts to weigh on you a little bit, those sort of things, Achilles and, um, and niggles like that. Um, but I was in good nick, a really good nick. And cut a long story short, in Beijing, we avoided the village like we always did. We've spoken about that. Stayed in an apartment outside of the, um, the village. Um, went in, got access into the stadium and, and did the heat of the Olympics. And the mistake we made prior to the, uh, the Olympics is that the semi-finals, so to give you an understanding in, as to how they seed the semi-finals, it's based on your previous times in that particular event. And in 2008, I didn't run a 5K. We outsmarted ourselves in that respect, in that um, I was pre-qualified and we felt that didn't really need to run a 5K or a fast 5K prior to the Olympic Games. Uh, because I would be okay and would make it through the final. So they seed you into um, three semis. Um, and in my semi, I had six blokes that had run under 12.55 that season. Um, and I remember looking at the start list and going, holy fuck. <laughs> like, I'm good, but I could very easily not make the final here. And that was a mistake. Um, we, we didn't put a time on the board prior to the Olympics, got into the into the semi-final and I think I had Bakili and you know guys like this that um, were in my semi and I finished fifth by a second and missed out on the final because I was in one of the slower semis and had I made the final who knows mm -hmm. I, I maybe I was 15th maybe I was fifth I don't know it's one of those things that we'll never know but I remember I was filthy afterwards and I went back to my, my hotel room and um, went out and my my partner, who's now my wife, was over there, Christine, with me, and we just went out and had a couple of drinks. And I got on the internet that night and just booked my flights for the following morning back to Australia. And I remember landing back in Australia at Melbourne Airport um, before the 5K final had even started. I couldn't even tell you what happened in the 5K final. I've never watched it um, in, from Beijing. I don't... Not because I, I just oh, haven't, I haven't watched it. It's sort of... Um, it hurt me that, to be quite honest. And the expectation of me... 
before that was to make the final and obviously try and medal in that. And then to walk through customs at Melbourne Airport and the custom guy goes, oh, you're back early. What are you, you know, what happened? That, those sort of things, they, wear, they sort of weigh on you a little bit. So that was really tough. Um, and then off the back of that, there was, I don't know whether you, how much detail you're going to go into. There were a lot of changes, a lot of things that happened um, post that. And I've sort of brushed over it leading into Beijing, all the various bits and pieces that happened. But at the end of the day, I underperformed. It's as simple as that. And I wear it. That's, that's one of the things that I always try to take pride in. It's my career. It was my journey. And mm-hmm. when things went well, you can accept them and be proud of them. And when they don't, you have to own it. And for me, um, there were things I think I, I did wrong in preparing um, and I was going to change them. And after, after Beijing, I made a lot of changes. That you did, and you don't have to go. <laughs> I know you, it's, not, it's not in your name. You don't have to go deep into that. But just quickly, on the Beijing thing, like you've, had, you've had four ridiculously stellar years. Like I'm not mm. sure an athlete's ever had just a more phenomenal four years. But you think back, the Olympia, it is just so hard to get it right. And it's, it, is, it comes down to a lot of luck as well. And you, you, a lot of luck as well is involved. A lot of luck. Um, I was probably at that back end of that purple patch, so I was hanging on. Um, Achilles tendonopathy doesn't help for 12 months, brother. I know you're not going to make excuses ever, but I'm just no, saying. No, and, and, and we can talk, it, and I'll, I'll explain what happened post-Beijing, if you like, oh, um, all that sort of stuff. Want. But... Um, that, that wasn't – look, there was a lot of things that were going on prior to Beijing um, that would have had an impact on the result. But the most important thing to understand here is that I, you know, I take full responsibility yeah. for all of totally. it because I'm in control of it. If I don't acknowledge that these, you know, and, and make the changes, then no one is because um, it's my career. So um, I think, yeah, Beijing was disappointing, but I needed to be proactive in making decisions that I felt were right – um, and I believe they were right. Um, and I, I joke with my wife now, and after Beijing, she was the only person to survive the cull. So I got rid of every, not got rid of everybody, but had conversations with, um, with my team and all the people that I was working with. And I think from both sides, so, you know, there were multiple parties involved in all of this, but I think everybody needed a change. Um, we'd been together for a long time. We'd done some great things. I was probably at, I was, what, 20 28 um, years old I was at a point in my career where I wanted more responsibility for things I wanted to take more control of it whether that was the best thing for my running or not who knows but it was better for my life and I think you've got to try to balance up um, those things Uh, and I'll put my hand on my heart and acknowledge right here post 2008 I was never quite the same from an athletic point of view um, because I probably spent most of my, my my bickies I suppose in terms of my athletic energy and um, an effort pr- um, getting into that sort of purple patch for those four or five years from 03 to 08. Um, but I still felt I had a lot to offer um, in terms of um, more running. Um, so after 2008, um, I split from Melbourne Track Club, which I'd worked with for a long time. Um, I went from Nike to Adidas. So I changed sponsors, negotiated that myself, um, which was a lesson um, and a great experience. and. I think I did an okay job, you know, like it, it is what it is. They're pretty simple, those sort of things. But I was ready to take on a career that involved athletics and then obviously start to think about what I was going to do beyond um, athletics. And, and off the back of that, I was dealing with all of that and I was also trying to get um, my Achilles right. So I was, I was trying to do all of that sort of stuff while I wasn't able to do what I loved, which was running. So that was really difficult, um, trying to balance all of that sort of stuff. But I had great support from, from Christine, my wife, and her family and my family just trying to balance all of that 
together and I thought the Achilles would take about six months but in actual fact they took three years so it wasn't until 2000 the second half of 2010 that I was actually able to run again um, and I had multiple surgeries to get them right um, and that was just a really testing time from a running perspective to go from being in that really positive era, era of um, being able to take on whoever I wanted whenever I wanted to actually having to step right back and and, and try to get something like your Achilles right where I'd run for 10 minutes and I'd get sore so I'd have to stop for three days and then try to run again and to the point where I took actually eight months completely off running totally and then went for a run 15 minutes into my run same problem and so that's when we started to be more aggressive with all the surgeries and I think we've we've documented many a time in various different articles around my journey with Achilles because a lot of athletes have them and I, I, we did everything in Australia. We got great doctors and all that sort of stuff. But post 2008, the Olympics, we did rest. Um, we did strengthening, so your, your eccentric loading, uh, uh, polydocanol injections, cortisone injections, hydrodilatations, um, dry needling, everything. I even tried scootering, you know, that sort of weird shit to try to get it right. And in the end, it was just one of these things that needed surgical intervention. Um, and once I'd made that decision, and I wish I had made that decision f straight away, but we didn't know, you know, hindsight's wonderful. Um, I got that done and I was able to get back into running. And if we sort of skip through that 09 and 10 period, um, which was spent trying to rehab back and get Achilles right, once I got back into that sort of early 2010, uh, 2011, I was able to sink my teeth back into running. Um, and I qualified for um, the Olympics for 2012, uh, in the 5k which still to this day is probably one of the highlights of my running career people go well, you've done all this other stuff but why do you find that that 5k and it was at lakeside i remember it march march 5th i think it was 2012 um i ran a 5k at lakeside and um, and ran 13 17 and qualified for my fourth olympics off the back of very little um hadn't been able to do a lot but i desperately wanted to try to qualify for that fourth olympic games and and prove to myself um, that I could still run if I absolutely desperately wanted to do it. Um, and that was hard, that was really hard, but um, I did that um, and that was really rewarding. Be sure to tune in next week for the final part of the Deep Dive with Craig Mottram. Things like that enables me when I get injured to focus on other things, so swim and ride, which I did, and I actually got bloody good in the pool.